we have made it to the very end of our judges overview. Great first passage to take on as a, a first sermon that's textual based is the end of Judges. It's very easy and heartwarming, so thank you, Dad, for making sure this was the passage I could deal with. <laughs> um, as you will see, that was very sarcastic. The end of Judges is um, sort of one of the most intense passages in Scripture. Also, I'm going to be covering a lot of narrative. It's the last three chapters, 19, 20, and 21. So the nature of how this sermon had come out is it's gonna be about half covering just what is happening in the text and making sure we understand what is happening and half talking about application and how this applies to us. So normally when you cover just a, a shorter passage, it's easier to take time to talk about the background, theology, and um, application. But we're gonna be covering a lot of narrative, so I want you guys to be warned that we're gonna be talking a lot about the, just the story of what's happening in the text. But that's part of the, the benefit of being a church is we get to just look at the text with each other and know what's going on. With that in mind, let's get into the end of Judges. Um, I titled this uh, The Levite, the Concubine, and the Benjamites. <laughs> um, kind of like a play on words of the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, but way less fun. Um, <laughs> this is much more darker. Um, and it's also, to let you know where this is going to be going, there are two stories at the end of the book of Judges. One is honed in on a Levite um, and his concubine, and there are other characters involved, but there really are two main characters. Um, and then after that story is uh, the, collectively the tribe of Israel um, in a war against the tribe of Benjamin. I don't think textually they're ever called the Benjamites, so I think grammatically that's wrong, but I did it for fun and I make the rules for the sermon, so. <laughs> um, so before we dive into the text, I do wanna do a quick reminder of what we've been talking about. Um, throughout the book of Judges, we've been seeing this pattern happen. This is um, made by the Bible Project in their overview um, lesson online, and it shows the theme and, and the pattern that the Israelites fall into. Uh, they um, are given into the promised land. This happens after the death of Joshua. They make it to the promised land. Um, and now that they're there, they fall into idolatry often. They listen to their surrounding neighboring um, tribes and countries and they, they, be, they fall into pagan worship. And then after this happens, uh, they fall into oppression and the Lord allows a country um, and a tribe to take them over. And it is during that time the Israelites cry out to the Lord in repentance and to save for del uh, to deliver them from the oppressors. Though it's not a true repentance of we are so sorry about what we have done, it's more of please deliver us from this oppressor. From there, the Lord delivers them. He gives them the power to overconquer their oppressors and then they are brought back to a time of peace. And there's always a little bit of time of they are actually back to worshiping the Lord how he commands them to. But then that shortly and quickly passes and they fall back into idol worship. And that is constantly the, the theme of judges and as each judge arises. And so I had scoured uh, just bunches of libraries, uh, many scholars and uh, in, on the internet for hours trying to find what's the best way to really look and recap the theme of judges and this kind of story and I found this picture on Google Images and I think it's perfect for judges. Um, when a judge comes, 
It kind of brings Israel back into a time of rejoicing and to, of correct praise, and, and they, they get closer to God, and then right after that, they fall back into um, sin. Then another judge is sent, and the judge themselves is actually worse than the previous judge. They are not as righteous as the judge that came before them, and Israel is less righteous. And so they are brought back to a type of repentance, but not as good as previously. So it's kind of this gradual slope down with spikes of turning back to God. And where we are at now, Judges 19, 20, and 21, is the very bottom of the graph. And it actually works perfectly with the arrow just pointing straight down because Judges ends with no deliverance. It is just a time of Israel falling further and further into sin and into chaos. And that's how the book ends. The very last verses we had seen um, is that there was no um, king in the land and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then the book closes. So, woo, get excited to go through this. It's super cheerful for this rainy weather. <laughs> um, but knowing that, um, I'm going to share three different points with you guys as we go along. Um, the first two points are connected to the stories that uh, we are going to look through. And then the last point is after we have completed the book of Judges, what do we take away? Uh, also, I meant to pluralize all of these on this slide, but um, selfish hearts, body parts, and kingdom smarts are the three points that I want you to take away. Um, selfish hearts is going to be connected to the story of the Levite and the concubine. Um, and as we get into it, you will see exactly um, it, it is a narrative explaining just how evil the heart can be when separated from following Yahweh. When a person is given over to their own selfish desire into their own total depravity, what does that really look like to live into? And if you bring that question to scripture, I would say go to Judges 19 and you will see what that looks like. There is an answer. And it's important for us to know that. So that's going to be the point um, with the Levi and the concubine. Second is when Israel fights against the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, I named that body parts, and I will do a lot more explaining once we get there. But my question at the end of that point is going to be raised, which body do you belong to? Are you belonging to a body that likes to bring chaos and destruction and one that is all about self-caring? Or are you belonging to the body of Christ, a body of life and love? And there is one or the other. It's a true dichotomy that scripture sets up for us. And it's played out here in the end of Judges. And then lastly, after we look at all of that, uh, there is great news now, us as readers of this kind of story in the time and age that we are in, um, we are no longer in a time without a king. We get to live looking to the king of kings, and what, so that's great, but why is it great? What is the difference in living between the Israelites without a king and now today, now that we have a king? What does that really look like? So. With that in mind, let's get into the text. Okay, we're starting right at the beginning of Judges 19. Here we go. In those days when there was no king in Israel, pause, we, we know from reading in Judges up to this point, every time that line is brought up, the following things to happen are going to be really bad. So we know right away, something bad is going to go on, so let's, let's figure out what that is. There's no king in Israel. 
A certain Levite was sojourning in a remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Okay, so far, not too bad. We know of a Levite who lives in Ephraim, and he has a concubine, which is a little weird, but he has a concubine from Bethlehem. And I have a map here to display exactly where they are. Um, it says the Levite is in the, the hill country of Ephraim, so around like the Silo region, if you can see in uh, like above the eye in Ephraim, around that land. Um, and then down below in Judah at the, the northern tip is where Bethlehem is, and that's where the concubine is from. So these are our main two characters that we are going to be following, and we know where they're from, and they're both in Ephraim right now. Okay, cool, not too bad so far. Let's see where this goes. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. Okay, awesome. <laughs> so right away, we're, something terrible has happened. Um, th this is a bad relationship. The, the concubine is unfaithful to um, her husband. And so now we know we're, we're going down the spiral of sin. So the concubine is unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. The concubine had cheated on him and then escaped to her father's house down in Bethlehem. So through, um, through the tribe of Benjamin down into Bethlehem. So a few days journey to escape from him and then to hide. Uh, we go on to read um, in verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her. He waited four months. I guess um, he, he didn't find a need to go after her Previously, he just waited that time. Uh, he waits four months. Uh, to uh, the husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. So we have uh, the Levite that we've been introduced to and the concubine. The concubine has cheated on him, and now uh, the Levite is coming to retrieve her. Now, it may seem so far that this Levite is actually a good guy because we just know that he was cheated on. He goes to go get her, and we see this sentence here. He spoke kindly to her to bring her back. But I do want to remind you guys that the lens that we are supposed to read judges in at this point is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And so it is not wrong for us to know the motives behind what they are doing is going to be a selfish motive. It's, it's a little difficult because we're not told of their motives. We're just being told of what happens. But when you know that that's the context of what Judges is talking about, that's how we should interpret it. And also, a lot of the things that I take about the characters um, in these stories, I take from Tim Keller. He has a book and commentary on Judges, and he has a lot of the background info. So that's a great commentary. If you guys ever go through Judges, I recommend um, his book. Um, and... Why would the, so, so what benefits the Levite for going to go get this concubine that cheated on him? Well, a concubine in the first place, often in times of selfishness, if you're not going to be a good person, um, has benefits for whoever she belongs to. She's more thought of as an object. She um, is used for sexual pleasure, and she also, for whatever house she belongs to, um, if it's an honoring name, it's good to be associated with her. So there are things that's going to benefit the Levite for going to go get this concubine. And it is more than likely that's what 
he is thinking about, especially when we see the kind of character he is later on. So very selfish characters here. He goes down, but he speaks kindly to her. He's kind of trying to swoon her and sweet talk her. So uh, quick note to ladies, if a guy can just sweet talk you, don't fall for it right away. Make sure you know his character as well. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, okay, story continuing. And it says, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Okay, now we have been introduced to our third character, the father of the concubine. Let's, let's try to know a little bit more about this guy. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. So yet again, it seems like this father-in-law is a very nice guy. He's very hospitable. He's given this guy a bag of pretzels, and <laughs> he gives him a morsel of bread, and he gives him wine, and they're chit-chatting, he's giving him a house to stay in. So, so what, what could be the, the motive behind why he's doing all of this? And uh, again, this is from Keller's commentary. Um, the concubine, remember, had cheated on the Levite. And in ancient Israel during this time, a proper punishment for someone who commits adultery, and it's much easier to make this guilty towards a woman during this time, is to kill them. They would be stoned to death, they could also be exiled, they would be beaten and then kicked out of the land. And if someone in your name gets that kind of punishment, it brings great dishonor upon the family name. So this Levite comes and the father's like, I know the power you have over my family right now because of what my daughter did. So I'm just gonna be this super friendly guy. We'll turn the Bears game on and we're gonna just chit chat and be super nice. I'll give you some wine if you want. So he's saving his own face here. It's not because of just being a respectful, hospitable person. It is him watching out for his own back. Okay, so so far we have met only selfish characters and uh, it's only going to get worse. Um, I'm now going to, to quickly summarize some of the next verses um, because um, we can't look at the whole text of all three chapters. I'm sure you guys would leave by then. So <laughs> um, what happens is he stays a few nights there. It talks about them them talking, and then um, he stays a day later than he plans to, and it talks about the hospitality of the, the father-in-law. But then eventually, um, the Levite gets up and goes, and he takes his concubine with him, and they go up, their, their plan is to go up to Jerusalem. They're gonna go to the Lord's temple because they're called to go there three times a year. So it's his time to go, and he brings the concubine, and on their travels, um, they if you're looking at the map. So they're down in Bethlehem and then going up into the tribe of Benjamin into Jerusalem. So they make it about halfway into the tribe of Benjamin and they stop in a place called Gibeah. And Gibeah is not a great place at all and we're going to see just how dark of a place it is. And they are looking for someone to host them to stay the night and they can't find anyone and so they're gonna plan to stay in the town square. And in the town square, um, 
finally, like before night comes, a old man comes up and says, um, it is not safe for you to stay in this town square. Um, so please come with me, I will house you. And they go out um, just on the rim of the town, he has a house and they're staying there for the night. And it is then in the middle of the night when the men of Gibeah come and they are going to surround the house that the Levite and the concubine are staying in. And warning, this is now the passage that is the darkest passage, one of the darkest in scripture. It is not easy to read, it is hard to, it's not enjoyable to, to hear about these kind of things, but this, again, remember, is a perfect image of a selfish heart, and this is what we're looking at. When, when someone is fully given over to their depravity, what is the outcome? What does that really look like? And that's what this story is. So bear with me through this. Um, so starting in verse 22, they're at the house of the old man. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, and I'm going to come back to that word worthless there, worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out and then out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man did not but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine, the Levite, and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. This is obviously a very sad and depraved and disgusting story, but this is a perfect display of when a heart is just so consumed of your own desire and of what you want, this becomes commonplace. This is now what Gibeah has become. This is why it's known that it's not safe to stay in the town square because this is the natural acting of man in their depravity. I want to bring our attention back to the word worthless layer. That, that word also can be um, translated as Belial. And Belial also, um, the, the, the other time that we see this word used is in 2 Corinthians 6.15. And this is when Paul is talking about the character of God. And he says, what can God do? Can God have anything to do with Belial? And can a believer have anything to do with an unbeliever? And he's saying very much, no, these are um, absolutely separate things, direct opposition. There is God and there is Belial, there is the believer and there is the unbeliever. There is no correlation between the two, they are separate. And Belial can mean worthless or useless and evil and evildoer, but also many scholars and many um, commentaries, if you look up in Second Corinthians, um, it becomes a proper name for Satan himself. So if you take that into account, when you read in verse 22 that these are the worthless fellows, these are evildoers, they are useless, they are satans, they are opposition of what is good, 
the following thing to happen should not be as surprising. It is they are so consumed with themselves that they see people as objects to get their desire uh, fulfilled. We should not be surprised that the Levite who is selfish and is also worthless here decides to hand over the concubine to save himself. The old man that houses them decides to give over his own daughter to save himself and to save the Levite. Every character in this story, there is no Christ figure here. Everyone is looking out for themselves and it's quite sad that the most innocent person in this story is the concubine who cheated on her husband. And the only innocence that really comes is because of the thing that happens to her. It's so disgusting and awful, but she herself was not a great person. So, that is a lot to take in. This is a very sad story, but what do we personally take from this? What is, what is a thing that we should note? Is it's the image of a selfish heart, and this is what happens. Um, we know the day of those that will be in hell and those who decide to follow after Satan, and I think we can buy into this idea of how is it really true that people are going to want to stay in hell. I think once they see the lake of fire, they're not going to want to do that. But keep in mind, this is the heart of those people on that day. They're going to ignore the signs that God has given them, and they're going to say, no, like I want my own desire, and my desire above all things is to stay away from you, God. And so they say, throw me into the fire, and that's the heart of a selfish person. I think the, the best quote I could think of that um, describes a, a, the difference between a heart that follows God and a heart that follows Satan is from, you guessed it, C.S. Lewis in The Screwtape Letters. It's one of my favorite books that he has written. Um, and um, this quote, by the way, is written from the perspective of a demon. So it's a demon saying, um, when he says we or us, he's talking about Satan and demons and the evil side. And when he says them or us, he's referring to God and saints, just to clarify. And so um, what Lewis writes as a demon, he says, we want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in, he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that is a, a perfect understanding of if Satan is all about absorbing everything into himself, he is a completely selfish being that he needs to be filled by external things. Those who follow him will follow the same thing, that they are going to be so self-involved that abusing other people is just common. Like uh, th you shouldn't feel bad about doing that. And so much the opposite of who God is and his nature in him as Trinity, as Father and Son and Spirit, that they love one another and their love overflows to one another and it flows out onto us as his creation. It is, they have nothing to do with one another. So that, um, that is what I had taken away from that. I think Judges 19, um, though I don't recommend just bringing it up casually, I would say is a great place in scripture to understand a selfish heart in a really severe way. Scripture does not lean away from how bad sin can get. So that um, is the first story. So we're, we're through the muddiest of the waters and we still have some muddy waters to go through, but it's not as intense, okay? So 
you can all like take a breath through that. Okay. <laughs> now this second story, um, I, again, I'm going to do a bit of summary of what happens after their time in Gibeah. Um, one more quick, um, pretty like grotesque part. Um, the, the Levite and the man find the concubine on their front door in the morning. They tell her to get up and she has no response because she's on the brink of death. And because of this, they get up and they go to Jerusalem. They take the concubine with her and they cut her limbs off and send it to the tribes of Israel. And then all of a sudden we jump into chapter 20 and the Israelites are trying to come together um, and they're going to go to war. And at first, if you don't know contextually what's going on, you're like, how did one thing lead to the other? They, one point we're just cutting up a concubine and now we're fighting. Um, but that's because this is Israel, um, Israel knows that this is the sign, it's a, it's a call to war. It's a like Avengers assemble kind of moment, um, but it's in a very inhumane way. Saul, King Saul does this very same thing later on, but he uses two ox to cut up uh, their limbs and then he sends them to the tribes of Israel and they come together and go to war. What's happening here is they're cutting up a human. There is now no difference between an animal and a human to those who are living selfishly. So they do that, they send out uh, the limbs and now Israel is gathering together outside um, with the Levite. The Levite explains to them um, what they are going to do and like why they need to. So knowing that, we're picking back up in the beginning of Judges 20. Here we go. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. I'm going to come back to that because that is the main point that I'm going to be drawing from. It's that wording. Um, but before I get to that, I want to make sure we understand the whole narrative of what's going on. So, excuse me. Um, continuing on, verse 2. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. So, like I said, everyone gathered together and um, now, at this point, for the next few verses, it's going to be the Levite explaining what had happened. He conveniently leaves out that he gave the concubine over to save himself. He just says that the man of Gibeah did this to the concubine. So he left that out, but, you know, skimming details. Um, so he tells that, and they say, okay, um, this is truly a ruthless tribe. We have to get rid of the tribe of Benjamin. Then uh, the Israelites go and fight to them two different times, but they do not win. They lose these battles. It's about 40,000 Israelites that die trying to conquer the tribe of Benjamin here. Um, and then in verse 23, we see that the, this is where they repent to the Lord and say that we want, um, we come to you for the victory. And we, reading through the book of Judges, so recognize this pattern. We've seen this tens of dozens of times before of the times when they were conquered by an outside source. It's after they try to fight and to conquer them, but the Lord has not given them over to their hands, so they lose. It is then when they are brought to repentance and they say, Lord, please help us, that they win the battle. 
Um, but the huge difference here now is that it's not an external thing that's coming in that needs to be conquered. It is Israel caving in on itself. It is Israel versus Israel. It is a lose-lose situation here. And somehow, in the absolute brilliance and grace of God, his will still gets done through this tribe that is completely selfish. And their solution is we're going to kill off this tribe and God still somehow makes it work out. But that's what is happening, is Israel is going to attack itself and the Lord allows them to take over Benjamin. Um, so they, they, they finally have the fight. There's some verses that talk about um, the battle itself and how they ambushed them, how many people died, where they died at. Um, decided to glance over that, um, but I do recommend going and reading um, what happens. You'll, you'll learn more from it. But skipping to the end of the battle in verse 20, uh, 46, it says, So all who fled that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. So Israel had finally conquered the, the Benjamites, <laughs> the tribe of Benjamin, and 600 men survived. They had fled to the wilderness and everyone else had been killed off. Now, what the tribe, of, uh, so what Israel decides to do after these men come out of hiding from the wilderness is they say, okay, we are going to spare you. We want to keep the tribe of Benjamin alive. Um, but the problem is you don't have any wives. And we also had all taken an oath to not marry into your tribe because you were so chaotic. So they're like, okay, what do we do? And their solution is there was one place that did not go and make the oath to not uh, marry into the tribe of Benjamin. So here is the brilliant solution of the Israelites in 21.9. It says, for when the people were mustered, behold, no one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. Because this place missed the memo to say they didn't want to marry a Benjamite, they killed them off and then had taken um, all the virgin women from that land so they could give them to the Benjamites. So... As you can see, all the actions that are happening in this story are absolute chaos and evil, and uh, it's, it's just not, not going well. Um, they also, um, they, so they, they find 400 women in that tribe, um, but it's not enough for the Benjamites that are left, and so they, they end up also going to Siloa for a feast, and for the remaining 200 men, they take women from there so they can marry them. So there's thievery of women, there's a killing of a tribe, um, and the Benjamites are almost wiped out. And this is the outcome. This is just what naturally is taking course because of this evil and chaotic time in Israel. So, um, that, so that, that is the final story in the book of Judges, and then the book finally ends with Judges 21-25, Remember, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now, if you remember my point, um, body parts, this is actually not have to do with the concubine and the, the sending of her, her parts across Israel. But focusing on verse 
1 in 20. It says the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And I don't know about you guys, but this instantly recalled to my mind this idea of a bunch of people coming together to be gathered as one body, as one man, is the same thing that we are commanded as the church. We are supposed to be one body um, that moves. We are the body of Christ moving throughout the earth. But this is very different. It is a body of people getting together who are going to destroy one of their own kind. It is a caving in on itself. And so my proposition that I want to, to give to you guys as a biblical theme that I believe is carried out here is that there are two bodies that you can partake in, one that you can contribute to. You are either a part of a body of chaos and one that wants to, to spread destruction and it wants you to live in, in complete selfishness where you just absorb everything into yourself, or there is the body of Christ and you follow that example of how to live where you pour outwardly and you give earnestly and you follow Christ as the example who had died for everyone attached to that body and we follow that. And this is, this is played out in 1 John 3, 5 through 10. Uh, John writes, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who, bi- who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So you are either of righteousness because you are attached to Christ, who is righteousness, or you are of the kingdom of sinning because you are attached to the body of sinning, of sin. You are of this body that gathers and wants to live selfishly, just as the Israelites do in this story finishing the verse, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, there are two ways of kind of looking at this, about which body you belong to. One is in a salvific sense of once you are saved and brought into the body of Christ, you are permanently there. You are justified. When you are nailed to the cross with Christ, when Christ has paid for your sins, there's no going back from that. It's not this wishy-washy, oh, they're paid for, now they're not. Now they're paid for, now they're not. You, once you are saved, you are brought into the body forever. If you have not repented and you are not attached to Christ, if you do not want to follow him in righteousness, you are in the body of sin and you are attached to that, and that's going to affect how you live. And this is important for us as believers to recognize when we look out at the world and we see how people act and how non-believers react to one another, it shouldn't be expected that they should understand and live more selflessly. It should be expected the most selfish things are happening. And I honestly have not seen more of a selfish time in our society than right now of... um, All the time you hear, I want you to determine your reality, who you want to be, and it's all up to you. 
and we're all deciding what's best for ourselves. And that's what society is being pushed towards when that's the exact opposite message of what the kingdom of God is. That we are to pour ourselves out to one another. We are servants for one another. It is the last that is first. So it is one or the other, but also us as believers in this congregation, you know that we can still sin And so we are truly a part of the body of Christ and no one can take that away from you. But also when you sin and you decide to not follow the spirit within you and you decide to give into sinful habits, whether it's through action or for thought, something to to take note of is that which kingdom are you help moving at that moment? You are either contributing in the body of Christ and you are helping it move and spread and you are showing that love and peace. Or when you sin, there should be an urgency when you understand that you are actually helping the enemy's kingdom spread when you choose that. And that's really bad news. And so when you think about it that way, it should bring, and for me personally, after I had looked into this, you don't want to sin. You don't want to help that other kingdom spread further. And I don't want you to think that what if I like accidentally do something wrong? Does that mean I um, am helping the <laughs> Satan move or uh, did something negative but I didn't really mean to? Um, I am more getting at this in a, um, it's a preemptive thought you are choosing in that moment which side you want to belong to and which side you want to help spread. Um, I like to think about it as a game of chess, of there's direct opposition. It is one kingdom versus the other. And when you choose to act and move, you are thinking about what to do. And when you make the choice of what you're going to do, it, it is directly affecting one or the other. It's not an accidental thing. It's I'm living into this. Okay, so two different bodies that we can live into and it is a purposeful thing. It's not just this one way or the other. So that being said, we have finished the book of Judges. Let's go. We can finally move on to a better book. (laughs) It's very, it's a great book and it's historical. It's important to know, um, but man, it is, it's dark. So it's kind of nice to move on to Uh, the book of Ruth, um, it's much more encouraging and um, we can learn a lot from it. Um, But the last point that I want us to know, and what do we we take away? When you close the book of Judges, what do we take away from this? Is remember that the theme is that there was no king in the land. And because of that, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. But thank God that we sit here today and we have a king that we can look towards. And that That is what I mean by kingdom smarts. This is the message of Jesus, that though he is not physically here anymore, he did ascend into heaven, we do have a king to look towards for the example. And so now we know how to live because it has been displayed to us. The way of living in a kingdom, in this kingdom that we have been given now, is to look towards the one who rules over it, the king, Jesus Christ. This is his message in Matthew 6.33. He says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. He is telling us to look 
towards his kingdom and to look towards him as the example of how to live. And when you do that, when you, when you look at the nature of who Jesus Christ is, of how giving he is, how loving he is, how he handles different situations, you can't help when the Spirit pulls you to start acting like that. You want to be selfless. You want to pour your love out to others just how Jesus did. This is again told in Ephesians 5. There are so many verses in the New Testament that talk about how to imitate Christ, um, but I just picked Ephesians 5. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We so are radically changed from this life of chaotic living that it, rather than choosing to sacrifice others, to give away the concubine, to make sure that we're saving ourselves, we are so totally flipped that we become the sacrifice ourselves because that's what Christ did. He was the sacrifice. And let me tell you, that is ultimately more fulfilling, infinitely more fulfilling than a life of trying to fill yourself. And um, I just wanted to end... Judges is a really intense book, but I wanted to end with a very encouraging note of um, when we look to the example of the king, it should just bring praise of when you know who Jesus is. And I love the verse um, the chronicler writes in First Chronicles 29, 11, talking about the glory and the majesty of Jesus. He says, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head over all. And how glorious it is to live into that, to know that the, the victory is already given over to him. There's not going to be a victory for Satan. We are still in the battle, but we know the end game is that Jesus stands at the top, and we get to be a part of that. You can live into that. So that is the end of Judges. Um, I encourage you all to keep coming back as we go into Ruth because Ruth is a story about someone who follows this, that understands following after the king even in a time when others are not is 100% worth it. So I'm very excited to move on into Ruth with you all. Um, so um, if you would, would you bow your heads and pray to the king with me? Heavenly Father, we just come before you now as one body, um, recognizing that you are ruler over all. We recognize that your power and your majesty reigns over the earth. And Lord, we want to follow in that example. We want to, to live into it. We thank you for your word and the, uh, the things that it provides and speaks to our hearts. Um, I just pray for everyone listening to this, um, that they would be um, able to discern your voice throughout the week that um, in, diff in difficult situations or in easy times that, the, that your spirit would speak first before anything else. And when we are confronted about which body to participate in, whether it's Satan pulling at us or your spirit, Lord, just please give us your spirit to speak over us. Lord, we look forward to the day where your kingdom is fully established here. We know that you will conquer over death, that you will conquer over Satan, and we look greatly to that day. We love you, and pr we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.